Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. So I'm going to begin in a a moment on the stated topic, but I decided that I was probably a little bit remiss this afternoon, so I know a few of you were here, and for those who I didn't get to do this with, I will, that's water under the bridge, so to speak. Uh, I I did want to talk a little bit about the Center for Contemporary Musar, if uh, you don't mind, Um, just so that you have an idea of what I'm doing and what we're doing and who we are and... Uh, so, uh, the Center for Contemporary Musar uh, is a, an umbrella organization that uh, sponsors classes uh, all around the country for people who are interested in studying Musar in our uh, particular uh, uh, structure. Uh, to give you a very quick introduction to that structure, our Musar program, different from some others that you may have heard about or been involved with, requires, first of all, that every is a weekly class, uh, 13-week semesters. The program is four years uh, in length. Um, the, some, the, uh, the, the, um, the students uh, meet in a, in a group called the VAD uh, once a week. 50 minutes is spent on the shiur, which is in Misila Isharim, using the commentary that I wrote on Misilat Yisharim. And then the second part of the evening, the Vod does work on the various midot or character traits, but the Vod is facilitated by a trained madrich or madricha, trained facilitator. We train them. Uh, and so it's not just a discussion of the midot, or what, but rather we have a very clear template, a, a protocol as to how people report and how they are guided to, um, to have some insight into their own behavior. Um, uh, this program was developed, uh, the, 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 the rabbinic part, as it were, has been developed by myself, and the, um, the protocols that we use in the VOD developed by my partner, who is a uh, psychologist. Um, in addition, we ask students to journal every night, we ask them to meet in Chevruta once a week before class to prepare the class, to prepare the, the, the text. Um, we ask each student to take on him or herself uh, two mitzvot that they are not presently doing. One mitzvah, what we call ben adam that is one interpersonal mitzvah, and one mitzvah which is generally called um, ben adam l'makom, um, sometimes called the ritual mitzvot. I prefer to call them the interruptive mitzvot, right? Uh, Those mitzvot that function to interrupt our self-absorption. 
Uh, and so uh, th these groups form and frankly uh, have been uh, successful in, um, in providing transformational experiences for the people that have been in them over the years. It's a, it's a, it's a big commitment, uh, but generally speaking, my experience has been that once people get a taste of it, they don't mind the commitment at all. Uh, so um, we, all of our madrichim have gone through that four-year program and then through a madrich training program. Uh, and our groups are, I would say, 80% run through video. Right? So the groups are all over the country, but most of our madrichim live in the Philadelphia area. But we have trained some madrichim in other parts of the country, so we have some in-person groups that function in Los Angeles, in Oregon, in Maryland, a few other places, but most of the rest of our groups function on um, using Zoom, uh, which is remarkable uh, technology, miraculous, really. There actually should be a bracha every time you turn on Zoom. Um, so I, and, and we have a website, it's a very nice little website, uh, centerforcontemporarymusser.org. If you're interested, or if you're interested in learning more about the program, or if you have people that you think might be interested in forming a group and being uh, and getting a madrich to work with them, we'd be happy to, to, to hear from you. So that's by way of commercial announcement. So the, the story of Musar and how I came to Musar is actually very much intertwined with the story that I want to talk, talk about tonight, the story of Levinas, 40 years ago. I think, it could be off by a year or two. In my first year in rabbinical school, uh, I had come to rabbinic school uh, as out of the world of social action in the 1960s. I'd actually been a college dropout. I worked in the civil rights movement. I worked in the anti-war movement. Uh, and uh, for a variety of reasons that I don't I, don't, I won't go into, I re-engaged at around that time, 40 years ago or so, with my Jewish background, which had always been, which had been important to me as a young person, but I'd lost touch with. And I ended up going to rabbinical school, right? That's a long story. So in my first year, I loved rabbinic studies. I loved Talmud, I loved Bible, I was eating it all up. But I did feel something a little bit missing in terms of the uh, commitment to, to ethics and commitment to social values. In many ways, because my um, inspiration for going to rabbinical school had been the work and life of Abraham Joshua Heschel. Uh, and Heschel's work had propelled me back into Judaism and then into the, uh, into the seminary. Um, unfortunately, he died in my first semester so I never had the opportunity to study with him, but be that as it may, that was my inspiration, and I kind of found that missing. So I went looking, and I had the habit every Friday afternoon before Shabbat to go to one of the Jewish bookstores in Los Angeles and find something interesting to read on Shabbat that had nothing to do with my classes. And I found a pamphlet, a little paperback pamphlet, called the Musar Anthology. It had been published by a group of, graduate, of, of Jewish graduate students from Harvard and Berkeley and a couple of other places, uh, introducing the idea of the, the um, 
the Musser movement as a, a, a way in which contemporary Jewish life could be um, reanimated, if you will. And it had a profound effect on me. Uh, and so I wrote my first paper for my first Jewish philosophy class with my first Jewish philosophy teacher on the topic of the possibilities of a contemporary Musser movement. This was 1974, I think. My teacher was Rabbi Harold Schulweis. Some of you may have heard of him. And Rabbi Schulweis wrote on the back of my paper, he gave me an A, and he wrote on the back of the paper, this is a very interesting idea, but what are you going to do about the theology? Now, what he meant by that, and I'm repeating some things that I said before, earlier, is that the theology of, on the surface of most Musar texts is the least malleable theology of any genre of Jewish literature. There's not a lot of room for interpretation on the surface, right? Um, it's really about God watching you. And if you are good, you go to heaven. And if you're bad, you get punished. And people are controlled by their evil impulses, etc., etc., etc. And Rabbi Schulweis, himself being on the reconstructionist edge of conservative Judaism, uh, found this um, very patriarchal and very um, um, traditional view of God to be untenable. And he suggested to me, or was suggesting to me through this quote, uh, this, this comment, that if I were to pursue Musar as an interest, I would have to wrestle with the theology. I don't know if any of you are teachers or have been teachers. Uh, but uh, making a comment on a student's paper can have profound impact. <laughs> because I then spent the next 25 years trying to answer Rabbi Schulweis's question. How to find a contemporary theological model to ground the behavioristic system of, of, of Musar. Right? Uh, and uh, I essentially taught myself Jewish philosophy in order to, uh, to try to find such a thing, uh, to the point where, as Rabbi Shmuley mentioned in my overly long biograph uh, biography, uh, but to the point at which I was teaching philosophy at, at the seminary. Um, so I did a pretty good job of teaching myself philosophy. Um, and, but the answer to the question that Rabbi Schulweis asked emerged only with my encounter with Emmanuel Levinas. So now let me talk to you about Emmanuel Levinas. Emmanuel Levinas was born in Kovno, Lithuania in 1906. He was the uh, child of basically middle-class, mildly Haskara Jews. Right, Enlightenment Jews. Now, to be an Enlightenment Jew in early 20th century Kovno is not the same as being reform or conservative. Right? It meant that his parents were open to new trends, new ideas. They probably spoke Hebrew 
and focused on Hebrew language more than they did Yiddish. They studied Bible more than they did Talmud. And they were voraciously involved with Russian literature uh, and, uh, um, and, and the larger Western canon. Uh, so he had a, but they were, I'm sure, uh, scrupulously observant Jews and, and were part of the larger Lithuanian Jewish community, which was, of course, at the time, probably the greatest uh, Jewish community in the world. Um, they stayed in Kovno until 1916, so he was 10 years old, when they moved across the border into Russia, this town of Karkov, because of pogroms in Kovno. And they stayed in Karkov until the Russian Revolution in 1917. Uh, and by 1920, as Russia was embroiled in civil war, they moved back across the border and lived in Kovno. Um, and um, um, in both Karkov and in um, Kovno, Levinas attended the gymnasium. He was the only Jewish student admitted to the gymnasia. That was the sort of the high-class educational institution in the town uh, and, um, and usually was not open to Jews. Um, and in 1922, Levinas left, um, I'm sorry, at 22 years old, right? Um, in about, yeah, in about 1922, he left, um, uh, Lithuania to study at the university in uh, France, in Strasbourg. Uh, he never saw his family again. Um, he um, studied in Strasbourg in 19, from beginning in 1923, uh, and in 1928, he went to the University of um, Freiburg in Germany, where he studied under the great philosophers Martin Husserl and Martin Heidegger. Now, I'm not sure how familiar those names are, but Husserl was the founder of a profoundly important philosophical system in, the, in European thought called phenomenology. Uh, Heidegger was his student, and Heidegger outshone his teacher, which was no easy job, uh, and really was considered to be one of the greatest philosophers in the history of Western thought, um, comparable to the early Greeks, really. Um, but Heidegger had a certain flaw, which some of you may have heard about. Uh, he was a Nazi. Uh, and um, Levinas appreciated the brilliance of Heidegger's philosophy, in fact, introduced Heidegger's philosophy into France through his own first book, um, and, um, but also saw very early that the philosophy itself and its focus on the question of being and the totality of being would, in fact, had, was, it, was something that had been endemic in Western thought from the time of Aristotle on, and that totality, that totalistic thinking was in fact um, the cause of totalitarianism and how easily totalitarianism uh, 
um, 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 came to fruition in the Western world. So uh, in 1938 or so, Levinas publishes one of the earliest papers warning the world about the dangers of Nazism. And he breaks with Heidegger. Uh, his break with Heidegger is not only a political break around Nazism, but is a philosophical break. So let me just say a word about ontological phenomenology. Um, as you can imagine, this is not a subject that it's easy to say a word about. Um, but for our purposes, ontology asks the question made famous by Shakespeare, right? To be or not to be, right? It is the, the focus of ontology is the study of being, right? The study of existence, if you will. And in that study of, of existence, there is, by definition, nothing outside of existence except non-existence, right? So really, you have life and you have death. You have being and nothingness. In fact, that would be the name of um, uh, Heidegger's great work, Being and Nothingness, right? Levinas says that Heidegger's analysis of being is brilliant, but it is not the first question that philosophy should ask. The question should not be to be or not to be, but rather how to be. That is, human beings find themselves in the world and to understand or to explore the meaning of their being avoids the question of exploring and understanding the task of their being, right? What are they being for? And so Levinas says that while Aristotle and Heidegger in turn make ontology the first philosophy, the true first philosophy is ethics. Before you can study being as being, you need to study what we are here, or why we be, as it were, right? What, we're, what we need to do. Um, and then he will spend the rest of his life developing a, a, a profoundly difficult and complicated philosophic system which explores the way in which human beings come to know the, um, the task of being, right? the ethical task. Uh, and I'm going to stop there for a second. I'm not going to ask if you have any questions uh, because I don't know whether anybody could possibly have any questions yet. Um, but what I'm going to do is get away from the philosophy for a minute and go back to the biography. Um, so Levinas uh, is, is in France. And in 1938, he returns, uh, uh, well, earlier than that, he returns to France from his time in Germany. Um, and he graduates from the university uh, and he becomes a French citizen, naturalizes as a French citizen, uh, and he is drafted into the fr French army in 1939 as the war begins. Uh, he is captured 
in the early months of the war, as of course the French army collapses, uh, and he spends the rest of the war years in a um, POW camp in, in Germany. Now, being captured as a prisoner of war saved his life, right? Because the Nazis, while they would take you know, the average Tom, Dick, and Harry Jew and send them to a concentration camp, uh, did not send POWs to concentration camps for fear uh, that, they, that this would become public knowledge uh, and that the, their, their violation of the Geneva Accords would, uh, would, would redound against them in some, in some way. Um, and so he spends it in, his, in a labor camp. It is a labor camp that segregates between Jews and non-Jews, so he's in a Jewish labor camp. Uh, this is not to be confused with a vacation. The fact that it's not a concentration camp does not make it a vacation. Uh, but he is nevertheless able, number one, to survive, and number two, to do a certain amount of work uh, in his own time. Uh, and in fact, begins in the camp to write what will be his first published work after the war, a book called Being uh, Existence and Existence. Um, and um, in the meantime, his wife, and daughter are being sheltered in a monastery where they actually also survive the war. But his parents, his brothers, his sisters, his in-laws, nobody else, all of whom were in Lithuania, nobody else survives the war. And the impact of the Holocaust is not a small matter in terms of his thinking. After the war in post-war Paris, Levinas meets a person whose name we now know, but who at the time was called Monsieur Chouchani. He's a mysterious figure. He is kind of a vagabond, maybe a street person, homeless, amongst all of the deep displaced persons. Um, he is brilliant. He is uh, brilliant in math, in physics, in Talmud, in Bible, in all rabbinic studies. Uh, he is unkempt. He is uncontrollable. Nobody knows exactly where he lives or how he lives but he shows up in different places in Paris and he selects students that he wants to teach. We know of th four such students, one of whom was a doctor that was very friendly with Levinas. The other uh, was a man by the name of Shalom Rosenberg who went on to be the head of philosophy at the University of, uh, Jewish philosophy at the University of uh, uh, Buenos Aires. One was a man by the name of Elie Wiesel, and one was Emmanuel Levinas. And if you're interested in Shushani, who is, is really a figure out of the imagination, uh, there's a story in Wiesel's book, I think it's called New Tales of the Hasidim, and it's called The Wandering Jew, and it's a fictionalized account of his encounter with Monsieur Shushani. Uh, he also describes his uh, encounter with Monsieur Shushani in his biography, All the Rivers Run to the Sea. 
Uh, and it's, a, it's just fascinating. Uh, he tells the story, Wiesel, that he was on his way. He had been asked to come to a DP camp to teach us a group of young people, um, the, the prophets. And he goes on the bus, and Shoshani is on the bus, and Shoshani asks him where he's going. He tells him, and he says, you don't know what, you don't, you don't know what you're doing. I'll come with you. And he comes with him to the DP camp, and he, spend, and, and he mesmerizes the kids, and they spend like all night studying. I mean, it was just an extraordinary experience. So Shushani began to teach Levinas Talmud. Now, as I said, from his background as an um, Enlightenment Jew, he probably didn't have any Talmudic background, despite the primacy of Talmud in Lithuania. Um, but of course, he's a very bright young man. Uh, and he takes to it very well. And he, in particular, takes to the, to the method that Shushani introduces him to. It's a revolutionary method of doing Talmud study in which Shushani uh, teaches him that the, um, the, the purpose of the Talmudic argument is to find the ethical, to find the good. And that when you are studying a sugya, a section of Talmud, if you haven't yet found the good, you haven't finished studying it. And you just have to keep going over it and over and over again until you can, you can make the text speak in an ethical language. Because according to Shoshani, that was the intent of the rabbis. In addition, Shushani taught Levinas that every time the rabbis use the word um, um, Yisrael to describe a person, right? every time they said that somebody was, an, was a Jew, they meant a person. Right? They meant Adam. So every time they said the word Yisrael, they meant Adam. They meant human beings. That is, for the rabbis, Jew and human were synonymous. And therefore, they used the word Jew and were comfortable using it, but never intended it to be understood as an ethnic designation, but rather intended it to distinguish between those people who accepted upon themselves the responsibility to bear the burden of other people by which they became fully human. And therefore, the distinction between Jew and non-Jew is not an ethnic distinction. It's a distinction between those who accept the responsibility for others and those who don't. Right? You could be um, the child of Jewish parents going back 25 generations. But if you were, excuse the expression, an SOB, you weren't a Jew. And if you weren't born Jewish, but gave your life over to helping others, you were a Jew. And this was a definition that Shushani taught to Levinas, amongst other principles of, of what we might call radical Talmudic interpretation. Um, so now, take a break from the, from the biography and go back a little bit to the philosophy, because I want to just summarize it for you in a few sentences. Um, I preface that summary by saying, again, um, phenomenological studies, 
philosophy and phenomenological philosophy in general, uh, uses a very difficult technical language. Right? So I would very much counsel against going out tomorrow to Barnes & Noble and picking up a book of philosophy by Levinas. I'm sure you are all very bright people. That's not the issue. The issue is you simply will not understand the language unless you have a background in, in the, in the in technical background in the field, right? Um, that said, the kernel of what Levinas teaches is that he goes back to Plato. And he said, Plato said that all of being was a totality. And that's the totality that Aristotle developed. And that's been the model for Western thought going forward. But Aristotle ignored one thing else that Plato said. And that was that everything in being was, was contained in this totality except for one thing, the good. The good was beyond being. The good was, in Levinas's language, otherwise than being, right? Um, and that somehow the good interrupted the totality of being. So Levinas says, the way in which the good interrupts the totality of being is by being engraved on the face of the other. When I encounter another human being and I look into his or her face, I see not only his or her face, but I see in his or her total otherness a command. Right? that on their face is carried a command for me to serve them. Right? That's how the good, in platonic terms, makes its way into the world of being. It is carried on the human face. And if we truly look into the eyes of another, we recognize at least the basic ethical imperative, thou shalt not murder. You cannot murder another human being if you look them directly in the eye and really see them. And see them not as part of you, but as totally other. And this is where the other, um, the question of otherness becomes very important. If all of being is a totality, then in the end, everything is part of everything else. And if everything is part of everything else, everything is all one on some level, some basic level. And in fact, says Levinas, that has been a cardinal belief of Western philosophy since the time that Thales said everything is water. Or the other pre-Socratic said, everything is ether, right? Western philosophy has always been looking for the all, for something that explains why all of us are really part of one another. 
But Levinas says that that's precisely what precipitates totalitarianism. Because if all of us are part of the same thing, then you are part of me. And if since the 16th century, under the Cartesian revolution, that reality is an expression of myself, right? I think, therefore, I am, right? So uh, all of creation, all of reality, is a, f is a creation of my thinking. And everything is part of me. And therefore, if you're part of me, I can do with you what I want, right? If you have a finger that is infected and it becomes gangrenous, you can cut it off. Well, if you define a certain kind of people as being a gangrene on the body of humanity, then you can cut them off. And that precisely describes certainly the Nazi program, as well as I don't know how many other dozens of genocidal programs within the history of the Western world. Right? But if, in fact, you have a philosophical standard that says the other person is not part of me, is totally other, then that person, I don't have, I, it, it, since that person is not part of me, I don't have any right to, um, you know, to, to cut that person off. In fact, quite the contrary, Levinas says, the, the other person's very otherness stands above me and hits me as a command. He uses the language of election. He says, when the other looks at me with his or her eyes, I am riveted, I am elected, and all I can do is to respond I'm here. Here I am. How can I serve you? Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. So I want to just be clear you're picking up my little hints here. This structure says that there is an other who is totally other, unlike anything, not a part of me, not a part of anything I can comprehend, whose very otherness stands above me and commands me by riveting my attention and electing me and making me responsible for the welfare of that other. Now, what does that sound like? It sounds like the description of Israel's relationship with God culminating perhaps in the Shema, also, of course, the Aseret Adibrot, the Ten Commandments, the very notion, that, right? When, when Moses asks God, what are you? God says, nobody can know what I am, right? I am that which I will be. I am the future, whatever that means. Or I will pass by you and you will only see my back. 
So all we can see is not what God is, but where God has been. And where has God been? Adonai, Adonai, al-Rachum v'chanun, where God has been are the midot of responsibility uh, that pass by in front of Moses. God is long-suffering and patient and loving and all of that. So essentially what we know of God, if you unpack the theology of the Torah, what we know of God is that God is totally other, incomprehensible, commanding, and expects that, uh, that that command will be, un, will be, will rivet us, will elect us, asher bachar bana, right? Not voluntary, you're chosen. Not because you're better, but because you're human. And to be human is to be chosen. To be chosen to implement this ethical vision of creating loving kindness, etc., etc. So Levinas is translating what he will call Hebrew wisdom into Greek, what he will call Greek. Not literally the language of Greece, of Greek, but the philosophy. He will argue that Greek philosophy ha- is a boon to humanity. It has bequeathed us many goods, democracy, egalitarianism, equality, fraternity, all of the things that the, the, the Greek ethos have bequeathed the Western world. But, he says, it is lacking the wisdom of the Hebrew tradition, which puts before the problem of ontology the problem of ethics, of how to be, um, and sees every human being as being chosen to, um, uh, to respond the way Moses responded, the way Abraham responded. He and he, I am here. How can I serve you? Um, okay, so one can argue, and in fact most people do argue, that Levinas tries to accomplish a kind of um, integration of the two great traditions of Western thought, Hebrew and Greek, in a way that has never been done before. Right? And part of the reason it's never been done before is that in the past, when Hebrew was in, encountered Greek, when Hebrew wisdom encountered Greek wisdom, uh, Hebrew wisdom was usually subsumed. It was not allowed to speak its own truth. So now back to the biography. In 1953, um, the first, or not necessarily the first, but at one a general assembly of the French Jewish community um, called the uh, Alliance Francaise. Right? The Alliance Francaise is kind of like the Jewish Federation of France. And they have a big GA. They don't call it the GA, they call it something else. But they have this big conference. Now, by this time in 1952 or 53, Levinas has returned from the war. He has received his, um, his uh, initial graduation from the university. He's not yet received his doctorate. That will take him many years. Uh, and he is not permitted to teach at a French university. 
because probably because of French anti-Semitism. Possibly the excuse that will be given to him for, for some years is that his French language is too heavily accented. And the French take their, ac- their language very seriously. And the idea of a professor at the Sorbonne or somebody like that speaking with a, Lith- you know, a Litvische accent was too much for them to bear. So Levinas was unable to break into the academic world initially in Paris, though he was already by that time a very well-respected scholar amongst others. He was friends with um, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, Jean Val, uh, what's his name, D, with the Jacques Derrida, right? all the great uh, post-war existentialists and phenomenologists. In fact, he was credited by Sartre as having introduced phenomenology to France and thereby allowing Sartre to create existentialism. Uh, so he was very well respected, but he couldn't get a job at a university. So he took a job as the principal of a school, of a school um, f- for Jewish students from the French colonies. Right? There's a, a, um, a school system run by the uh, Jewish institutions in France that provided edu- Jewish education for Jewish students in the French colonies, Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia, etc. And the best of the students in those countries would be sent to Paris to attend a high school, uh, which uh, Levinas became first a teacher and then principal. And by the way, he kept that job for about, I think, close to 20 years before he finally got a university position uh, in the 1960s. Um, So in any case, this Alliance uh, Francais had this conference. Now, being French, they held the conference in two different hotels. One hotel was for everybody, and the other hotel was for philosophers or intellectuals. Right? Uh, they both went to the same conference. They had certain things in common, but for most of the day, they spent their time doing different things. Community leaders would talk about community problems, and the intellectual elite would talk about intellectual problems. They would present papers. They would talk about problems in Jewish education, etc. And so they invited Levinas to give a lecture on Talmud. Uh, And they would invite Levinas to give this Talmudic lecture every year from 1952 into, I believe, the early 1970s or beyond. So that there was a body of work produced of Talmudic readings. And what Levinas did in these readings is that he would take a particular sugya in the Talmud and he would read it through this Shoshani lens, right? If the rabbis are talking, if he would say, for example, if the rabbis are only interested in the local problem of, let's say, what materials you can make a Shabbos candle of, then they have nothing to say to us. It's purely localized and of historical interest. But if we assume that the Talmud speaks from great spiritual wisdom and contains the, the, the fruit of the minds of great spiritual leaders, then we need to read those 
passages over and over again until we have uh, broken through the surface um, metaphoric system and come to understand what the real problem in real life, in real ethical, spiritual life motivated this particular rabbinic discussion. And that's what he would do. He would take the Talmudic line, line, line by line and, um, and, and show how these seemingly mundane, sometimes silly, almost Talmudic discussions masked uh, a font of, of ethically oriented wisdom. Wisdom that was known to those people who wrote it and to those people for whom it was written, but which became lost over the centuries as the text began to take on the patina of sacred scripture from which one could not deviate and one could not extrapolate. So he produced a, a first a book called Nine Talmud, well, first a book called Four Talmud Readings, then a book called Five Talmud Readings, then a book called Further Talmud Readings, uh, and most of those have now been translated in English. Um, as Rabbi Shmuley mentioned earlier, my book on Levinas is an attempt to take his methodology and apply it to halachic sugiyot, halachic discussions, whereas he never ventured into that. He always stayed on a Gothic or narrative sugiyot. He felt he would get into less trouble with the rabbis. Uh, in addition, Levinas would publish these Talmudic readings with a different publisher than the publisher he published his philosophic works with. He wanted to make a clear-cut demarcation between what he called his confessional writing and his professional philosophic writing. In the category of confessional writing, he became a prolific contributor to Jewish magazines, Jewish newspapers, Jewish journals. He was a speaker at a many Jewish and interfaith conferences, and all of that material on subjects from Zionism to Martin Buber to contemporary Israel to Jewish education um, to the Holocaust to his relationship with Franz Rosenzweig, all of the stuff that had to do with Judaism was published under one publisher, and all of his stuff having to do with phenomenology, books like Existence and Existence, Totality and Infinity, Otherwise Than Being and Beyond Essence, books that were really pretty far out there. Those were all published by his non-confessional publisher. Um, he also was an observant Jew. Uh, he went to shul every Shabbos, and in his shul in Paris, he gave a weekly shiur in Chumash and Rashi. Unfortunately, because it was before the age of, not, of halachically sanctioned tape recording, uh, all of that material, which must have been extraordinary, is lost uh, because it was Shabbos and nobody could write and nobody could record. Um, uh, but he um, uh, was clearly a very active and very involved um, Jew. His work has become the basis for a, an almost a, a um, remarkable uh, uh, industry 
of philosophical uh, writing, of PhDs, etc. And in the course of that work, it has become more and more clear that the distinction he made between his Jewish work and his professional work was not because he did not see them as related, but was actually a way of protecting himself because of the anti-Semitism that was still very much present in French intellectual circles. And so to, to explicitly claim a, 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 a contribution from his Jewish world into the philosophic world would have, he believed, I think, uh, diminished the impact of his work. He would have been, to use a word that I just made up, he would have been Franz Rosenzweig. Rosenzweig's book, Star of Redemption, is a brilliant piece of early 20th century phenomenological philosophy. But because Rosenzweig identified it as a, being a Jewish book, try as you may in any bookstore that you go to, you will never find the Star of Redemption shelved in the philosophy section. It will always be shelved in the Judaic section. And Levinas did not want to be shelved in the Judaic section. Not because he was embarrassed about being Jewish, but because he believed sincerely that his contribution was not to be seen as a Jewish writer, but to, to be seen as a philosopher, bringing the wisdom of Hebrew literature into the mainstream of the Western world. Uh, with him now gone, and with those issues no longer as pressing, um, we now see more and more the deep philosophical and textual roots of his philosophy in his Jewish studies and in his Jewish uh, ideas and in his Jewish texts. Which is why I like to say Emmanuel Levinas is the most important Jewish philosopher who ever lived, bar none. I say that with a certain amount of trepidation because we all know who we're supposed to say is the greatest Jewish philosopher who ever lived. Maimonides, right? But I would argue that Levinas surpasses Maimonides in a number of important ways. Number one, well, first of all, before we get to Maimonides, let's compare him to every other Jewish philosopher between himself and Maimonides. There have been other important Jewish philosophers. Spinoza comes to mind. Um, there are others. Um, and in general, Jewish philosophers break down into two categories. Either they're philosophers who happen to be Jewish, like Spinoza, but whose philosophy is not in any way connected and whose lives are not connected, right? Who do not live as Jews. Or they are Jewish philosophers speaking to the Jewish community and trying to interpret into Jewish, into Jewish thought the ideas of the outside world, like Albo, for example, or others. Only Maimonides and Levinas span both worlds. Right? They are 
mainstream philosophers in their time, respected and read by Jews and non-Jews alike, living as Jews and functioning within the Jewish community and writing Jewish commentary as well as um, non-Jewish, you might say, commentary. Right? And in that sense, Emmanuel Levinas is the first philosopher since Maimonides to be so situated. The reason that I would give him a step beyond Maimonides is primarily because the focus of Maimonides' work is still located entirely within the Jewish milieu. So even if non-Jewish philosophers took the God of the Perplexed seriously as a work of philosophy, they essentially had to wade through the problems of Jewish textuality that, Mom, that Rambam deals with in that book. Whereas Levinas is directly part of and impacting the world of non-Jewish philosophy in a way that no Jewish philosopher since Spinoza has done, and in a way that is, that, that is different from Spinoza in that he is really a Jewish philosopher, both in terms of what he's saying and how he lives his life. Um, now the question is, why does nobody know who he is? Okay, a couple of people. Why is he not taught in the seminaries? Right? Why do rabbis not know who he is? Uh, why are his books not made available? Um, why don't we teach some of his work in Hebrew high school, the way we would do Maimonides? Um, well, obviously, on one level, they're, they're hard. Right? But more importantly, it is a comment on the intellectual level or the level of intellectual discourse in the American Jewish community. Levinas challenges the pieties of the traditional Jewish community. And here by traditional, I don't mean orthodox. I mean orthodox, conservative, reconstructionist, and reform. On the level of intellectual discourse, they're all the same. Right? They all have a certain kind of simplicity of approach in terms of issues of theology uh, and issues of textual interpretation. And Levinas challenges those pieties and suggests in a radical sort of way that being a Jew is about being more than just an ethnic identity. It's about the kind of person that you are. Uh, and, um, and that, I think, challenges the established Jewish community. Secondly, and this is not meant really in a derogatory way, it's just a, it's a fact. The intellectual level of American scholarship, American universities, American seminaries, uh, simply is no longer up to the task of reading serious primary source philosophy. I mean, they don't read Aristotle, Plato, or they don't read Maimonides. The Guide of the Perplexed is not taught in seminaries. Right? Um, 
philosophy and theology is considered in Jewish studies to be peripheral. What's important in Jewish studies is Talmudic and biblical and midrashic scholarship. Uh, and theology or philosophy is simply not part of the curriculum to any great extent. Um, I think that's part of the American ethos. Uh, and partly, again, because these things are in some ways threatening. So I think I've actually just about taken most of my time. Uh, and I was going to leave time now for questions and discussion. So uh, I apologize. This is not an easy subject to introduce people to. I hope that I've done it in a way that makes some sense. Uh, and that it leaves you with some things to think about and some questions to ask. So the floor is open. Yes, a question. Is not the purpose of the way people practice Judaism today using Torah as Talmud and trying to constantly pull out of it, as you talked about trying to pull out the, the layers from beneath the Talmud. Talmud, I, I believe, being no Talmud scholar at all, uh, the, the work of people trying to pull that out of Torah, strictly for the purpose of finding the ethic to live by, <coughs> is that, in your opinion, not as valuable a root source as these philosophical dictates that you talked about? So that's a great question. Um, and I would answer by saying, couple, A, I think your original premise is correct. Right? That is, the development of the Talmudic literature was precisely in part, a way of reading the Torah text ethically, right? So when the rabbis would go through the, the Torah text in the course of creating midrashim that would eventually be collected and be part of either midrashic, halachic midrashic, agadic midrashic, or putting it all together in the Talmud, I think that, you, that Levinas would argue, by the way, that in fact all he's really trying to do is to bring the Talmudic method back into, uh, into action. That what happens is that the Talmud treats the Torah as the urtext out of which comes the basic ethical insights which then get translated into, in, into uh, real life situations. And Levinas is saying when you read a Talmudic text, you need to read it in the same way. You need to find in that text what was the ethical issue that it was trying to deal with and at the same time bring that ethical issue forward into your own time. So he actually, he almost idolizes Talmudic discourse. That's not the right word, of course, but I mean, he has tremendous respect for Talmudic discourse, but only Talmudic discourse be, before the Talmud itself became an object of 
literalist veneration. So if the rabbis in a Talmudic argument come to a particular halachic decision, or let's even be more accurate, rarely does the Talmud come to any kind of halachic decision, and yet post-Talmudic Judaism treats the Talmud as though it were the source for definitive uh, halachic decisions, some of which are ethical and some of which are not. Uh, Levinas would say that's a disservice to the Talmud, that's a, that's a movement away from the kind of discourse that the Talmud uh, in, in, in initiated. Right? So the entire history of medieval Jewry by which the Talmud becomes a new scripture and by which the halachic um, part of the Jewish tradition triumphs over the agadic part, right? So you have, in the terms of the contemporary Jew, uh, legal scholar Robert uh, Cover, Robert, Robert Coover says that there are two things in legal texts. There are uh, law and narrative. And the law and the narrative travel together, right? And the law is influenced by the narrative and the narrative is influenced by the law and they're, they're inseparable. Well, that was the case for Jewish history. The Torah is law and narrative, right? Every time you finish a legal section, suddenly you're in the middle of some story. That's not an accident. Those stories are meant to contextualize the law. They're meant to show how the Torah is trying to wrestle with human nature in order to create a holy society. Well, immediately after, you know, the close of the Torah, you have the creation of Midrash, which continues the integration of law and narrative. You have Midrashic Halacha, Midrashic Agadah. And then for a little while, you have a deviation. You have this radical new book called the Mishnah. And because Jewish life was so difficult in that period, the rabbis of the Mishnah said, look, we can't tell all the stories. We can't have all the conversation. We can't have all the description. We just got to know what we're supposed to do. We need to keep the Jewish body alive. We can't worry so much about the soul. Well, within a few years of the publication of the Mishnah, the Jewish community swamps it and says, we reject that. And then you have the same dynamic that you find in the Torah, where you have law and narrative mixed together in the Talmudic cauldron. And, and, and so, so the premise of your question is correct. What happens after that is that there's another period of, of, um, of difficulty for the Jewish people, and a completely new literature is born, and that's the literature of the codes. And the codes of Jewish law relegate all of the narrative to the side. And halacha becomes the central curriculum of Jewish life. And once halacha becomes the central curriculum of Jewish life, this dynamic is lost. It's broken. Right. Um, so, so the answer to your question is, no, everybody should not be a philosopher. No, but not everybody needs to read Levinas. But what everybody needs to do, I think, is to recognize and to read to the extent that they're able 
especially his Jewish writings, by which he tries to argue for this re, um, re-encounter with, the, with the, what, he, what, what might be called the pluralistic nature of Talmudic, the, plural, the ethical pluralistic nature of Talmudic discourse. Rabbi. I have many questions, but I'll start with these two. The first is, um, uh, do we know at all if empirically his ethical system works? And normally I would say the psychological question or empirical question of philosophy is the wrong one, but because he is actually trying to prevent another Holocaust from happening by concretizing the fix, uh, I wonder do we have any data about that. That's my first. Uh, my second question is, how does he account for stereotypes? Meaning we know that um, gender through sexism, we know that color through racism, we know that ageism, uh, the, the dynamics of age, we know beauty are factors that one feels more or less obliged to a person based upon the face. Does he account at all for the diversity? <coughs> okay, so the first question is um, probably easier to answer, and that is no. I mean, we have no empirical data. Uh, I don't think that there's any nation that has embraced Levinasianism as its creed. I, I mean, I, I just don't think... Now, I would argue that he's made an impact on a whole slew of Western thinkers um, and, and forced them to confront the ethical implications of their, of their theories. But he was not an activist. He was not a rabbi. He was a philosopher. And he really for better or for worse, uh, was not interested in implementing his system. That wasn't his job. His job was to think and to think it. Now, with great humility, I would suggest that the contemporary Musser movement, which in my case has been energized by this theology, which allows me to then make use of Musser texts and to create a a structure for Jewish practice that that, um, embodies this ethic, I would humbly submit as the first step in creating an active embodiment of Levinasian theory in a Jewish uh, practical um, environment. And that's been going on for like a decade or so in a very small group of people. Maybe in 400 years, that will be looked back on as being the, you know, some kind of great uh, turning point in Jewish life in the, the 21st century. I don't know. Um, I don't uh, imagine that that will happen, but who knows. So I don't have any information. The second question is also a good question. And uh, Levinas was actually taken to task to some degree by some of his cri- critics, uh, particularly on the issue of feminism, um, less so on racism, because that's not typically, at least in the you know, before the, before the last 20 years, that was not something that Europeans were terribly interested in. Um, but, um, um, 
But his response, and I think his philosophy's response, is that the face transcends ethical stereotypes, uh, transcends stereotypes. That his understanding of um, what he says is that the, <clears throat> the trace of God is, um, is present on the face of the other. And this transcendent trace, this trace that really um, lifts up, lifts us up in our encounter with the other such that the stereotypes that are associated with the plasticity of their face is transcended by the trace that is not found in the plasticity of their face. In other words, when I look at a face and I only see a black face or a woman's face or a man's face or a gay face or a Hispanic face, then I still haven't seen the trace. If I see the trace, then my responsibility to bear the other person's burden uh, comes to me from someplace beyond their stereotypic um, presentation. I don't know if that's good enough, but I think it would be where I would start to develop that, that idea. That somehow the trace transcends stereotypes without erasing them. Because we don't want to erase the, the, the particularity of people. Um, we don't want to erase. And in fact, he, his argument is that if we really truly see the other person as other, then we are riveted by their particularity. We're commanded by their particularity. So I think that somewhere in there would be the answer that, that he might give. Yes, sir? Okay, I feel I should preface this with the Shema, or at least Adonai Echad. But if seeing and serving the other is the way of God, if you will, could there be any value in, I think what some people are trying to do with the Shekinah, I think Christians were trying to do with to have some sense of otherness within the one so that this way of seeing and serving the other is in the very heart of reality, or the way of God. Does that that? Yeah, there's a lot to that. Um, Levinas is struggling with the tendency of all system making which devolves into a sense of oneness to become totalistic and therefore totalizing and therefore eventually totalitarian. He wants to create a oneness that is plural, right? Which is a contradiction in terms, or at least it's a paradox. And you're right. Um, Kabbalistic thought, which most contemporary scholars believe he was influenced by significantly, um, tries to do the same thing, right? By putting the Ein Sof on the other side, right? The transcendence 
is so, is so far away as to have nothing to do with the rest of reality. So the Kabbalah does sort of accomplish it. Not necessarily popular Kabbalah, which tends to drag the Ein Sof back into being a symbol for God. Levinas will say the Ein Sof is not God. The Ein Sof is beyond God. And by the way, Kabbalah will say the same thing. In fact, in the spherotic system, God is created lower down on the, on the spherot. God is a creature of the energy, if you will. Um, so if you can maintain that kind of totally transcendent God as a fail-safe against the, total, the system that, that inevitably develops on this side, then I think you can, you can reach the place that Levinas wants to reach. And I think that he tries, that in many ways he does reach. And which maybe the Kabbalah, you know, some Kabbalists also reached. Right? But that language is so rarefied and the thought is so impossible. You know, it's unthinkable. How can you think about that which is beyond thought? Right? So that's, that be, and, and how can you think of that which is beyond thought and keep it in mind even though you can't think it? And that's literally, that's, that's what the, many of the Kabbalists also struggled with. Now, Christians took a slightly easier road by creating a plural, what you might call a plural unity in the Trinity, but all three parts were on this side, right? Now, I'm not a Christian theologian, and I rarely make any comments about Christian theology because I don't want them making comments about Jewish theology that they don't understand. So I don't want to go even a step further, but I will suggest that that, 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 that um, at least the, certainly the popular understanding of Trinitarianism does not escape the totalitarian, the totality issue, right? Um, I think Levinas struggled with that in his first book, Totality and Infinity, and he was taken to task by critics who said, you've only created another totality. And so he wrote a, spent 10 years working on the issue and, or more and wrote another book called Otherwise Than Being and Beyond Essence, in which I think he really does accomplish the fact, this, this issue, though that book is so hard that very few people have quite figured out exactly what he was saying. So um, that maybe it uh, remains to be seen. But your question is very, very well taken in that sense. And I would argue that the same question emerges in the Torah. The Torah also deals with this question. Right? The Torah has to present a God that is beyond thinking, beyond knowing, beyond everything, and yet somehow is manifest, if you will, in the world uh, by virtue or by way of goodness, by way of mitzvot, by way of law. Right? Um, so, so you get these pieces in the, in, the, in the Torah where the Torah explicitly says you cannot understand. You, right? This is beyond you. You can't know my name. You can't see my face. You can't know anything, right? Um, and then you have the great so-called confession, Shema Yisrael, which means what? How do we translate? Hear Israel. The Lord is one. The Lord is God. The Lord is one. Right. Wrong. Wrong. So if I've told you nothing else tonight, 
Let me teach you how to translate the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is unique. Right? The Shema is not dealing with God's oneness. Right? Oneness is a multi- that's a, it's, it's not the issue of, of polytheism, that we believe in one God and everybody else believes in many gods. That issue was long settled and not particularly relevant for the writers of the Torah. What they were saying is precisely what we've just talked about, that God is unique. God is not us. We are not part of God. God is not part of us. God is totally other. If you want to uh, experience a brilliant midrashic interpretation of this idea, I highly recommend that you get a video recording of Arnold Schoenberg's opera, Moses und Aaron. It is this incredible dramatization. It's terrible music, if anybody knows Schoenberg, right? It's all, you know, uh, 12-tone, atonal music. I mean, it's really more of a spoken piece. But Moses is totally engulfed by this transcendent God who is so distant and so far away that the people can't deal with it. And they create the golden calf under the direction of Aaron, who is equally mystified by his brother and says, look, it's okay for you to be up in the cloud all this time with this God, but I got, I'm down here dealing with real people, right? Um, and, and so you see this this question of imminence, God's imminence, and God's transcendence. And I think Schoenberg had a remarkable um, insight into the nature of this problem um, and expressed it in that opera. Uh, let me just uh, uh, amend what I said before. You can go out to Barnes & Noble and find, if you want to find Levinas's Jewish writings, they are much more accessible. So both the nine Talmud readings, uh, but, he, but, but that also requires some facility with Talmud. There's no cliff notes version. No, but he has two or three different collections of general essays on Jewish subjects of Bible, and all of them have a taste of his, of his philosophy, right? So one I think is called Beyond the Verse. The other one is called, I'm not gonna remember, but, but if you look up Levinas in the Jewish section, uh, or if you look him up online and find his Jewish writings, those are good ways of getting into him, you know, in a much more gradual way. Well, we want to thank Rabbi Stone tonight for coming all the way from Philadelphia. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybaitmadrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community Indeed, all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.